Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast, powered by Kasum Carr. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ranjit Somd. Ranj keeps himself very busy. He is a lawyer working for the government legal department, a visiting lecturer at BPP, a member of the British Association for Sport and Law, and the current president of the Society of Asian Lawyers, Sal. So, a very big welcome, Ranj. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Been dying to have you on the show for ages. Um, before we go through all your amazing work, which I know I only touched on the tip of it in the introduction, there's lots more as well. We do have to have our icebreaker question on the podcast, which is around suits. So on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit series Suits in terms of its reality? <laughs> right. I'm going to go with two, two out of 10, because <laughs> I'd love to work in a legal profession where I could wear a really nice dapper suit if I could afford it, Harvey Specter, and just, you know, go around to offices and strong arming people into doing what you want them to do. I think some of your other guests have mentioned it's just, uh, it's kind of fantasy, isn't it, really? It's a good program, and I, I do like watching it. I'm going to say two out of ten, Bob. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. A lot of the real legal listeners will agree with you. I mean, I, I like the bit of Hollywood, so I think I gave it around a four or five the, uh, the other <laughs> I think you're right. In terms of the actual reality of it, it's probably got to be definitely below uh, below five. So look, let's start at the beginning. Right. Tell our listeners a bit about your family background and your upbringing. Right. So I was born and bred in East London uh, on the East Ham Manor Park border, if anyone knows that. I'm the youngest of seven children, and I was the first in my family to do law. In the early days, certainly, there wasn't much by way of guidance. Uh, there was no one to ask for career advice, but... I was a third in my family to go to university. So I've got an older sister and brother who had been, so that really paved the way for me, really. So I really knew I wanted to go into further education because I'd seen what they had done and, and what they were doing. And my dad was always always one for education, coming from a fairly modest or poor background. He didn't have that, unfortunately, coming from India. So he wanted to give us that opportunity, you know, and, and instill that into us. My dad worked for the Royal Mail as a sorting office. My mum was a full-time mum. Uh, and, and also a, a part-time seamstress at home. So went to a local comprehensive, then went to a local college to do A-levels, went to Derby University to do law. By that stage, I was pretty much set on law because I've been exposed to a bit of law. I mean, one of my sisters, unfortunately, got divorced in the 80s, and that was a kind of eye-opening experience for the whole family. I remember I accompanied her to some of the meetings with her lawyer in Stratford, and the first thing that struck me was that I quite like these nice offices, you know. <laughs> and, but, you know, it was quite emotional for my sister. So it has been there in support for her. So that was my first exposure to law. And then when I was 14 or 15, the school arranged a one week's work experience. And they asked everybody, you know, what would you like to do? What's your ideal occupation? Or where would you like to be placed? And I remember saying um, law firm or GP surgery, because at the time I wasn't sure lawyer or GP, I don't know why I was saying GP, actually. <laughs> never, never really that science-minded or anything like that. So they arranged a week at a local legal aid firm in East Ham. I was there for a week. I'm really grateful to them, actually. And even to this day, uh, you know, I'd, I'd kind of say thank you to them if I ever saw them again, because they didn't just have me photocopying. A lot of kids that age are sent off for work experience, and they came back to the same story, that they spent the majority of the time, unfortunately, photocopying or doing admin work. Yeah. Well, the guys in this firm really took me under their wing and, and I went to the court, saw them in action, 
at the uh, local magistrate's court. I went to the cells as well at the court, you know, to see, see the client. And it's a real eye-opener for, for a 14, 15-year-old. There was photocopying in between, but I got a real broad look into, into life in a law firm and what sort of you know, solicitors do. And I was hooked. And then and they asked me to come back in the summer holidays, which I did, and the following summer holidays as well. So, yeah, so that was my kind of a brief history and an introduction to law. Great. And so from there, then, you've worked and done some some fantastic things. But let, let's break it down. Tell, tell our listeners about your legal career to date. I understand after spending almost sort of 20 years as a, as a claimant personal injury lawyer, you took the bold decision to sort of retrain as an internet social media solicitor. So tell, tell us a bit about your experiences prior to that and then the rationale behind that bold decision. Yeah. So the holy grail is obviously getting a training contract after you do your LPC. I mean, I kind of struggled with the LPC a little bit. It just, it was an incredibly breakneck speed, I thought, just to get through it. But, you know, I got through it, which is good. And then it was, you know, the next step or the next hurdle was, you know, training contract. And, and I was out of work for a year. I didn't get a training contract for a year after the LPC, but I filled my time with doing voluntary posts in law terms. So I worked as a paralegal and I worked around as a legal assistant you know, for local council. And just to build up my experience on my TV, I then got my training contract with a legal aid firm in Canning Town, which sadly no longer exists. But I did training and, and my training was in, I did a personal injury, housing law, a bit of immigration and crime. So it was, it was real kind of a bread and butter, high street stuff, really. It was really exciting and kind of taught me so much. So I was there for two years as a trainee. I stayed on for a further two years. And that's when I started specialising in, in claimant personal injury and also housing. So the housing was landlord and tenant work and also homelessness. So I did that for another two years. And then I moved to a solely personal injury firm up in Romford. I was there for three years before... My wife and I, we left work and we went traveling around the world. So got on a plane around the world for six months. It was lovely. Came back and then, yeah, kind of back into first injury because first injury was really my kind of first love, really, if you like. So I stayed within that field, um, moved once more to a you know, national first injury firm. And I was there and, and I thought that was my home, really, because I really, I really liked the ethos and, and everything there and the work. Around 19, 20 years down the road, I then make decision to, to actually I first left employment and started to consult and the reason for that was every year I see you know I, I was finding that the pressures were increasing billables you know, hours kind of um, like what you're bringing in and everyone knows you have targets but if you exceed your target one year you're you're almost punished the following year they increase the target further they say, oh okay yeah you know, he, he kind of achieved those quite easily or you know quite quite comfortably let's just see if we can get a bit more out of him and, and I wasn't the only one so it, you know and it felt that in private practice at certain terms the culture was let's see how much we can squeeze or wring out of this person and that was getting me down actually I didn't realize at the time but my mental health was actually suffering a little bit at the time so so I left that I didn't have any job to go to and I still have had enough so I just left as a three months notice and it was really liberating as a massive weight lift off my shoulders and I just felt free and great for the first time in years had three months out of doing nothing over the summer with the kids. And then I thought I should really try and, try and find some work again. So then I, then I started contracting or consulting, again, in personal injury. But then there was an opportunity to retrain in internet social media law. And I got that through a friend who'd, who'd actually gone the same way from personal injury into this growing area of law. I did that for a short while. I mean, it was a bit short than I wanted it to be, but 
there's just in the end the, the opportunity wasn't as great as it as that could have been. I think that there were some limitations there, and and it was a small firm. I think um, I think they were just trying to grow too too quickly. So we kind of parted company after about eight months. I learned so much, and it's it's an area that actually ties in. I'm also doing a, a master's in sports law. So yeah, it was it was a great learning curve. But then after that, I've come back. Well, I say come back because I worked for the GLD many moons ago as a contractor as well. So now I'm with the, the government legal department and I've been here for 18 months almost. Yeah, tell us a bit more about what it's like working for the uh, the GLD and what you get up to. What's the day-to-day like? It's a really lovely working environment. I mean, everyone is I mean, all, all really fantastically qualified and really fantastic lawyers. There's a good work-life balance. Everyone works hard, but they know that there is life as well. So you know, I just feel they've got the balance right personally. So great work goes on there. So what I do personally there, I'm I'm doing a personal injury again, but from the defendant side. So I've kind of switched sides. And also inquest work. So that's that's, kind of, that's some colonial law. I look after the Ministry of Justice and they look after the prison. So any claim arising out of the prison really, so it's a big personal injury or kind of deaths in custody. And I suppose at the moment with lockdown working from home. I normally start my day at about nine o'clock. And interesting and varied case though, because no two prisons are the same. There's various issues depending on which prison that you're dealing with, really. Yeah. And you, you touched on it there, obviously, with, with lockdown and COVID-19. How has that impacted your day job? I'm very grateful, actually. I'm very grateful that I'm in a job or in a position where I can work from home. I know many people are not that fortunate. So, so I'm grateful for that. The workload hasn't changed uh, because we've always been uh, geared up to work from home because they used to work from home once or twice a week anyway, prior to COVID. And the, the nature of our work, we are quite often on the road with laptops, so attending inquests around the country. I was in Nottingham once. I've been to the Starport, you know, and, and my colleagues have been up to Preston, Lancashire. So we cover the breadth of the country. So we are pretty geared up to work remotely anyway. So the transition wasn't that difficult at all. The workload, thankfully, is is kind of still there, and we're expecting further claims out of the COVID situation as well from prisoners potentially. Great, thanks for sharing that, and I think it was really fascinating just learning your journey and the fact that you you did retrain as well, and it should give people confidence that if they want to make bold moves, you know, go for it. I guess from your from your inspiring comments there, and that really is just one arm of what you do, Rand. Obviously, the day job. So we must talk about everything else and. You know, one of the roles you have is the president of the Society of Asian Lawyers, Sal. For those perhaps new to the society, what does it do and how long have you been president there? Right, yeah. So Society of Asian Lawyers has been around since the early 1990s. It represents Asian lawyers in the UK. One of our main objectives is to improve diversity within the legal profession. People might say, well, there isn't a problem with diversity. But when you break it down, there are and there aren't. I mean, Entering the profession, there is less of a problem now. So the recent focus has been um, trying to kind of penetrate the, the more senior positions at boardroom level. And also in the judiciary, we ran a program of events. We had three events around the country, 2017 and 18, about the judiciary. And those events were to firstly just highlight to our members about a possible career as a judge. And to really sow the seed was, was really to kind of open up the idea to them so we had a panel of, of Asian judges who were recently qualified and they kind of explained and shared their stories. And it was really inspirational and kind of to sow the seed and to get people thinking because in the judiciary, there's only 7% of 
of judges are from black and Asian minority ethnic backgrounds. And when you break that down further, that 7% are largely concentrated in the lower courts and the tribunals. Once you get to the quarter level and above, again, like in law firms, and the numbers really drop away. So it's about supporting our members into getting into those, those types of roles in the future. Really. We also work quite closely with the SRA and the Law Society behind the scenes. There's lots of things that we, we can't always publicise and advertise that doing, but there's lots of work going on in the background. And more recently, for example, we've been working with the SRA as part of a focus group with other, other smaller groups as well on the new SQE exam, which comes in in September 21. So you know, there's, there's work going on behind the scenes all the time. I've been president now since September 16. We have elections every year, so we're opening it and we're democratically run. Anyone can stand for election. And the next election we're envisaging would be December this year. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for that. And I, I must say, you know, that's a very good high level overview of what you do. Because I know you do so much meaningful work for the profession. And you do some awesome events. And naturally, in light of COVID-19, they've shifted online. And, uh, and I know you've done some fantastic webinars via the likes of Zoom on mental health awareness and International Women's Day, which you finally got to do. How have you found running those events virtually? I think they're a bit of a revelation, actually. I don't know why, why we'd ever want to kind of travel across London to get to a seminar ever again. I, think, you know, I thought it was very well run. You can just stay in the, in the comfort of your home or your office, wherever you may be, and kind of get connected, really. I think there are so many platforms now you could use. We use Zoom for our two events. So there's one in May on mental health, which is a cause close to our hearts, mental health in the legal profession, which hasn't been spoken about until the last year or so, really. So we found them actually quite well attended as well. And what I found really encouraging, Rob, is that on a Zoom event, people can turn off the camera if they don't want to be seen, which is fine. And and we found much more interaction because of the chat feature that you have. So people are kind of leaving comments as you're going along and asking questions. Whereas I know from my own experience of running these events in person, people are quite often too shy to ask a question because the microphone goes around at the Q&A at the end. And it sometimes takes a brave person to say, yeah, you know, and kind of pick up the mic and ask the question. So, so we're finding much more engagement, really, with, with our members this way. So and I'm enjoying it. I think, that, I think it's good. I think the events you've done online have been absolutely fantastic. And you're absolutely right. I think you've been oh, quite modest there. They've been fantastically attended. So it's a testament to what you and all the committee and all the team are doing. And just on that, I mean, Kasum Carr had the immense honour of co-sponsoring last year, the 25th Annual Asian Legal Awards, which, you know, was amazing at the Royal Lancaster Hotel. I loved every minute of it. And clearly with COVID, what does that mean for the 2020 Asian Legal Awards? Are they still going to be happening? Is that going to be in sort of some virtual capacity or, or TBC? It's our flagship event. Thank you to you guys and Kissing Car for sponsoring last year and for attending and, and for helping us make it such a wonderful night. It was, it was a really cracking night. And it was great to see you there and your guests and so many friends and supporters over the years. So, yeah, that, that's our flagship event. That's, that's the one time of the year we really let our hair down. Firstly, it's about championing and celebrating Asian lawyers in the profession. It's also a great networking opportunity and, and it's a real kind of five-star event. So we're really going to miss that because we're unable to hold it in person. You know, So there won't be the grand affair at the Lancaster this year, I'm afraid. I think that's the right decision because with the guidance as it is, you know, it's, it's very uncertain as to what's going to happen in October, because we had a date already, it was going to be in October, but it's just not feasible to have it. But also there's a side to it that 
we were considering, you know, we need to be sensitive as well. I mean, we've lost an awful lot of people, unfortunately. A lot of people died this year from COVID. And, and so we were thinking whether it's the right thing to do is have a celebration of that size, even if we were allowed to. You know, so what are we going to do? So this is still being worked on. So I can't say an awful lot just yet, but hopefully there'll be some announcements coming out quite soon. We want to mark it in some way. There just won't be a live lavish affair that we normally have in the Lancaster and Craig, but there'll be something to mark an awards night of some kind. Not, not entirely sure yet. We're just trying to put some details together about Rob. Yeah, and I'm sure it'll be spectacular, whatever you do, having, you know, had the privilege of, of, of attending the event. So, uh, yeah, wishing you lots of luck with, with that one. And moving on to a, a shared passion as well that you and I have, Ranj, of, of sport. Um, you and I, you may know we recently had Sky Sports News presenter David Jones, who runs Super Sunday and Monday Night Football, come on the podcast. And, and you know I'm a very happy Liverpool fan right now. And you like to keep very busy with the day job and Sal. But what else do you do, perhaps, to, to add value to what's quite dear to your heart? Because I know you are a keen sports person. Is there anything else you get up to that, that you'd like to share? I'm a big football fan, as you know. For my sins, I'm a West Ham fan. Uh, and it, it's, never, it's never pretty, really, is it, for us? <laughs> <laughs> it's never easy. I'd like to say congratulations to you and your team. I think it's thoroughly deserved. Um, Thank you. league, really, in the end. By far the best team. By stark contrast, you know, West Ham on the other end of the table, you know, fighting for our lives. I've been a massive football fan. Actually, Rob, what you don't know is my first ever team was Liverpool. Really? Now that is, yeah, that, that is. When I was six years old, I was a bit of a glory hunter, I must say. Can I? <laughs> I think it was the Dalgleish days, Kenny Dalgleish. Um, I was a big Dalgleish fan. I thought, I thought he was an amazing player. But yeah, so <laughs> switched allegiances when I was eight years old. I also coach a, a local community-based football team called East Ham International FC. I mean, they've been around since 1976. They run three adult teams in in the various leagues in the East End of London and Essex. But the focus of the last year or so has been on the children and getting the kids involved. We're running a, a training camp and I'm, I'm coaching some under-10s, which include my two kids as well. And that's how I really got into it. Actually, they were playing there and I needed, needed another coach. and. I used to coach before, about 10 years ago. We used to do um, a friend of mine and I coached them. There's a Cuffley FC up in Hertfordshire back in 2009, I think it was. So I've got level one badge already. So we're going to just pick that up again. So, yes, yeah, Saturday mornings, 9 to 11 is a training. So I'm kind of passionate about that. We kind of put together the training drills and it's about kind of developing their skills and their, and their mentality. They're only in nine and 10, but they're kind of they're absolutely crazy for it as well, the kids. So, we're hoping to get, get them into a league uh, starting this September, but we're still waiting on, on local FA about what they're going to do. I've played in a football team as well for, for years, um, since I was about 18, and I've captured a team or two in my time as well. So I've always played in some capacity. Uh, and now I think in my more advanced years, it's only <laughs> natural that I fall into some coaching role, I think. Yeah, good stuff. And... Uh... Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And, and fingers crossed you do get into the league in, in September. And you followed your passion with, with sport even, even more so, combining it with the law. Because I understand you're currently studying the LLM sports law part-time at Dumont University at Leicester. And you're a member of the British Association of Sport and Law that I mentioned from the outset. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about that? First of all, studying part-time the Masters is I don't know what I was thinking, actually. It's not as easy as I thought. It's really quite hard. And the idea was to combine my two passions, sport and law. I mean, I thought 
kind of crazy about sport, not just football, but um, tennis, cricket, is and Formula One. My wife gets gets annoyed in the sports and all the time, but um, no. So yeah, the sport, you know, the idea is still there to kind of try and do some kind of work in sports law. I mean, I don't believe it's too late. I think I think if you've got a passion and, and you, you want to go for it, you know, I think I think you can. I took a bit of time out last year because. Uh, um, with the personal reasons last year, I, I took some time out, but uh, yeah, I've just come back to it now. So, the last six months really, generally should be done and dusted. So, yeah, sports law, distance learning. So, you go in, into De Montfort once a term, which at the moment we can't because of COVID. I like learning, I like learning, kind of learning about, about new things. And, and this was just a natural step, more of a hobby, which hopefully will transpire to something more concrete, I think, hopefully. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't stop there because you also teach the, the LPC, I understand, part-time to students at the University of West of England and BPP Cambridge and mentor students at the University of Derby. Do you want to just tell us a bit more about all of that? Uh, the teaching thing came about because I had a contact still at the University of Derby. And so the University of West of England deliver the LPC at Derby. So they were looking for some practitioners who could come in and, and really offer some current insight into into kind of work and teach the it was a, a personal injury module and, and a civil litigation module. So I kind of got into that that way and, and then I've kind of moved on from there really because the trip to Derby every every other Saturday was quite hard. And then also with the football training that was on the horizon, it kind of clashed. So I'm now doing it at BPP in Holborn instead, which is a lot easier. I was in Cambridge as well, but that again was on a Saturday, so I was going to clash with my football commitment. So I'm now at Holborn, and well, that's all on hold this year because of COVID, and also they had a slight restructure of their, their modules. But yeah, I mean, I really enjoy, I really enjoy the teaching side, which is quite ironic because I absolutely hated learning the LPC when I was a student on the LPC course. I absolutely hated it, but um, teaching it's okay. I enjoy giving back, and and it's surprising how much you know when when students actually ask you questions off scripts and you're able to answer them. But I like to think I'm a people person, and I get on with all the students, and I really enjoy that as well. Good stuff. And I believe law does run in your family, as your your wife is also a partner at a, a law firm. So how do you both sort of balance family life, looking after children, you know, you, yourself being a lawyer, president of SAL, all these other things? You know, a lot of people listening in, I'd be like, wow. But, you know, with you both being so busy, how do you manage that with, with, with sort of family time as well and, and family life? Yeah, it's, it's, it can be quite hard work. I mean, I think, I think the, the major advantage of having your partner who's also in law, if she gets it, you know, she understands the pressures. She understands if I'm moody one day, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, so she understands fully what it entails. In fact, she's a partner, so she has even more pressures and kind of more responsibility. I'm really lucky in that sense. We just work, we just click, I think. It kind of, we can complement each other and, uh, you know, there's, there's no questions of either, oh, why are you working late today or, you know, you know it's, it's complete understanding of, of our roles um, as long as one of us is, with the kids and and we do try and always kind of arrange it so that it's just a, a phone call i mean when we were at work and something came up we we call or you know and say stuck at work you can be at the kids and we have set days anyway but occasionally you have to deviate from this day but yeah it's it's just having an understanding partner which helps immensely and babysitters as well uh you know help but um we're both very passionate we're both very ambitious but then, you know, weekend time and evenings we do spend, you know, we do we do make sure that we make 
make it yeah, count. What have you guys been up to the downtime? Because you've got so much going on. You know, you've talked about your love of sport and everything else and bits and bobs. What what do you tend to try and do to sort of chill out time? The chill out time with the boys at the moment is playing football in the back uh, in the back garden because they absolutely love it. Getting mad for it, but we do like to watch a film as a family, something on on Disney or or you know something that, that we can all snuggle up on the sofa with the kids and just kind of watch a movie together. Although one of the two does like to give running commentary all throughout it. So <laughs> we're working that, on that. Did I get that from you, Ranj? <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's possibly. As we look to close them, Ranj, I'm sure a lot of people listening will be fully inspired from your journey and you know what you've done and what you've achieved and what you've managed to do. And you know, it's very honestly spoken about how you found the challenges along the way, but to get some prestigious you know, roles, as you say, as current president of Slough and everything else. If, if people want to, to sort of get in touch with you, what's the best way or platform for them to do that? Is it sort of LinkedIn or what, what, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can have, I'll be really happy to talk to anyone um, about anything, really. If they, if they want to have a little chat about their own careers or you know, anything at all, I'm on LinkedIn. I can chat that regularly. As, I suppose the best way is just, just drop me a message on LinkedIn. I'll be happy to connect. Yeah. And if people are interested in Sour, want to get involved, is there a, we'll, we'll probably share some links after this in all of the marketing materials, but is there a, do you want to give a shout out to the website for that? Yeah, it's, it's free to join. Um, and it's not, not just for Asian lawyers. We're an open organization to, to anybody and everyone. It's free to join. If you go to societyofasianlawyers.co.uk, there's a membership tab on the homepage and it's a very quick two-minute form to fill out and then you're on the mailing list and you're a member. So it's free to join and get involved and we look forward to seeing you there. Brilliant. Well, Ranj, from, from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, thanks an absolute million. It's been a real pleasure having you on, listening to your journey. Truly, truly inspiring, as I say. Wishing you all involved at SAO and all your wider pursuits lots of continued success, but from us, uh, over and out. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. And um, I wish you all the best too. Thanks for that.